Welcome to episode 43 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. If you're hearing the podcast for the first time, we're a show devoted to role-playing in the 41st millennium, using the gaming systems created by Fantasy Flight Games. Every episode we talk about a different game system, running through the five settings, and tonight we're talking about Death Watch. But before we talk about today's show, let's just do our sort of regular catch-up. And Mike, you missed your first episode. Yes, yes. Well, unfortunately I was off getting engaged, and that seemed a little bit more important. Yep, well, you know, Chris stepped in for you, and that seemed to go... Okay, but uh, yeah, it's actually been hard getting this show together because I, I was traveling substantially during the last week as well, and I, I got back on the Monday, and then we sort of, I, I was jonesing for some role-playing, so we, we played a game on the Tuesday, we did our Star Wars game, Yep. and then I said to my wife, can we do our podcast on the Wednesday, and she's like, no, no podcasting until you spend some more time with your family. Yeah. So hence, you know, we Unbelievable. are recording a little bit later than normal, uh, and we have my wife and your wife to be in the next room watching Downton Abbey, so if you hear foppish English accents in the background. It's not actually our manservants, it's just the TV. Yeah. But uh, anyway, let's get into talking about tonight's show. Oh, well, actually, mate, let me say, first, congratulations on your engagement. Oh, thank you. Uh, we actually had a few people through our boards say that as well, including Tim from Fantasy Flight, so yep. it was nice to hear that. But yeah, congratulations on that too. Hopefully, you guys will be very happy together. Yeah. <laughs> and she's a gamer too, so that's all yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, that's the important thing. That's it. All right, so getting back to tonight's episode. As I mentioned, it is a Death Watch show. Uh, we're going to have our regular news section. The next thing I had, originally we had our docket an interview. Uh, we're hoping to catch up with, uh, actually, Ross Watson again about yep, yep. something that we won't dispose right now. Unfortunately, schedules didn't work out, so uh, we're looking at catching up with Ross on a future episode, probably two episodes' time, yep. and, and we'll tell you more about it as we get closer to it as well. Yes. But instead of that, uh, system-wise tonight, we're going to talk about Death Watch's Fear and Damnation system, because uh, it's different from the rest of the game things because of the way Space Marines work. Yeah. Uh, then we're going to do our Space Wolf chapter discussion, which, Mike, I can tell you're looking forward oh, to. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you love Space Wolves, don't you? Oh. Just like you love Orcs? Well, actually, I prefer Orcs to Space Wolves. Really? Yes. Okay. <laughs> but Space Wolves haven't really changed in canon. I know they haven't. <laughs> it's a dislike for a different reason. Okay, no worries. Okay, so I'm sure we'll get a very... Oh, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll find out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right, so then we'll do our plot hooks and war gear sections. Today we're reviewing the Game Master's Kit for Death Watch. Yep. Uh, then we've actually had a, a listener request, actually only today as we're recording the podcast, uh, about how to create, I guess, vivid and compelling environments and settings for your game as well. How to make the world feel alive. Uh, and then finally we'll do our regular community section and close out the show. So Mike, do you remember something about this works? Can we get back into it? Yeah, yeah, yeah not it's, a problem it's like, at all. Just like riding a bike? Yeah, just like riding a bike, even though you've forgotten our week in gaming. <laughs> I didn't. I said we played Star Wars. Uh, is that it? Is yeah, that it. all the mention it gets? Is that? Is that? Did we do another role playing? Did you? Well, did well, you? Well, I, I'm just saying. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so in our week in gaming, we played our Star Wars game, <laughs> and that and it was good. Let's move right along, shall we? Yeah. Okay. Now we can.
commanded knowledge, accessing Imperial archives. So, out of Fantasy Flight Games in the last sort of fortnight, we did actually see an official announcement on their website about the digital character sheet program for iOS and Android. So, we did mention this briefly on the last show. Um, it's available on the, the various stores today. Mike, I've only just really shown it to you tonight, so you haven't had much of a chance to have a look at it. Do you think that, I mean, would you play a game with your character sheet on a digital system like that, like on an, on an app or on, an, on a tablet, for example? Um, I have to say, running the Mage game and having to carry all those books every time to the game, it's a pain in the ass. Yeah. PDF versions of books are great for running games, not so great for if you just want to sit down and have a read. Um, with a PDF, you know, with a digital version of the character sheet, I don't know. I'd have to really give it a go. Yeah. But I can't imagine it would be the same. Okay, well, let's take it a different step. This is not the same game sitting, but we've been playing the Star Wars game, and as you know, yep. the big part of that is interpreting the dice pool. Yes. And a lot of it is cancelling out dice. Now, there's a an app for... Uh, the, the dice yeah, rolling app. The dice yep. app, which, which will tell you what the net result of your, yeah, your pool is. Would you use that sort of thing in a game? Yeah, I mean, for dice rolling, I don't have a problem with it. Um, again, so long as it's sort of... If you set up an iPad in the middle of the table and everyone can see it and you're just pressing button, if there's someone sitting back there leaning back with their phone in their hand going, oh, yeah, I succeeded. Yeah, natural I mean, 20. Natural 20 again. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm not saying that everyone who uses it is going to cheat. I'm just saying that the... the uh, I suppose... The, the way of doing it is so different. Okay, the methodology. I yeah. mean, there, there are a lot of people out there who don't like having dice rolling apps at their no, table, for no. example. I mean, so. and there, there are people who go, oh, well, it's, it's not true randomization. I don't care about that. Yeah. I mean, it's randomized enough yeah. that it's not going to matter. Yeah, I mean, for, for the people that complain about the randomization of a computer's clock processor, you may as well start complaining about the fact that, you know, regular gaming dice aren't properly weighted so that every side is the exact scientific weight of the other Exactly. Other it's so random, it may as well be randomised, truly. Exactly. I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So, so that, forget that. You're never going to get the same results in the same sequence every time. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know, I just... Something doesn't feel right about everyone using dice rolling apps yeah um and with the character sheet thing i think it'll probably be great for the games master to have it sitting there behind his screen so he can just flick to anyone's character and he can do secret roles for them against their skills without having to say what's your perception role what was your perception skill then rolling and then they're like did i succeed no you didn't yeah okay now well, i mean the uh, it is very pretty i gotta say and i have seen especially in pathfinder a lot of there's a lot of pathfinder character managers out there as well so I can see some of the appeal of everyone sitting around the table with their their tablet out with their character loaded up and the ability to sort of roll dice out or construct pools yeah. as required and roll dice naturally. I, I guess it's just the changing face of, of, game. of gaming yeah, today. I, mean, I, I don't have a problem with it, but I just don't think it would feel the same. Okay. Actually, just on a side, I'm going to make one observation to you. As you know, I was in North America for the last week and uh, I've always just been there on business, so I don't really go into people's houses and... I got invited to one of my co-workers' houses for a barbecue on the last day that I was there. And he lives in the suburbs in, in upstate New York in, in an area called Rochester. And so, like, in Australia, we don't have basements because houses don't get cold enough to require boilers, you know. Yeah. And, and if we have attics at all, they are usually... A crawl space. A crawl space, basically, yeah. With, yeah. with a floor that if you step on, you'll fall through to the level below. So, and he gave us a tour of his 1912 sort of style of house which had the full basement and the full attic and everything 
and I got to say, I can see where the sort of the cliche of the basement dwelling gamer comes from now because he'd converted his uh, basement into a, a space for his band. You know, so the you know the walls were painted. It was still sort of concrete walls and such, but it was it wasn't the sort of classic cliche horror movie dank, you know, insect infested horror space as such. You know, it was it was a you know a room under his house, and the first thing in my that came to my head was this is be a great gaming space. You know, I could see people sitting here on couches, you know, with pizza and potentially their tablet in their hand, uh, role playing. <laughs> so I guess that's where it comes from. I don't know. I mean, it's just I, I wasn't used to it. I, I haven't seen that before. So I'm sure our North American listeners will be saying, of course, yeah, come on, basement, the best place to go. But yeah, for us, it's like, you know, what the garage sometimes for, for some gamers who yeah. want that sort of thing. But all the lounge room, that's it. Anyway, getting back onto the news. Uh, also from FFG, now Halls of Terror has seen its uh, official launch this week. So yep. my FLGS uh, person has picked it up for me and will be delivering it to me tomorrow. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. And we've also now seen a preview of one of the factions for Forbidden Stars. Now, this is the Ultramarines faction. Yep. Um, I will say, check out the preview, but one thing I really like are the figures. The little miniatures of the Strike Cruisers, the Titan, the Land Raider. They, they look like... It, it reminds me of Epic. Yeah. You know, but it, it looks like, you know, nice quality. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to checking mine out too. Um, on to Games Workshop, there's been a whole swathe of new Space Marine figures. Yes, they're releasing uh, the new Space Marine Codex very shortly. Yeah, so that's the funny thing, because that, that's the rumour. But it's not on their pre-release page. It's, yeah. You know, so not on their pre-order page, but everyone's talking about a Space Marine Codex coming out as such. Well, so. it's a good time to do it, except for the fact that they also just put prices up here in Australia. Yeah. Did they? Uh, I didn't notice. Yes. Yes, they did. Very noticeably for Australians. Um, which, you know, is a bit of a kick in the teeth, but there you go. Yep. And, um, yeah, it looks like Codex is possibly due out. But, I mean, there's a lot of Ultramarine stuff coming out. And for the Horus Heresy, a lot of Ultramarine stuff came out there as well. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that a lot of the figures they put out recently on their website, they're painted as Ultramarines on their website, but they are you know, figures that can be used for any Marine army. And yep. I, I said they've also updated, like, the the update packs where you can get, like, you know, um, Shul- shoulder pad. pads or various things to, to convert Marines into other... Other chapters specifically as well have things that you know stand yeah. out such for other chapters. So uh, yeah, but it looks like the our original expectation of a marine codex is probably highly likely. It is uh, not a lot from Eternal Crusade this week. It's actually um, the the latest live stream was today, and I didn't get a chance to watch it, so uh, I haven't yet seen what's on that one. So we'll have to report probably more on eternal crusade next week as such so yep. mike did you see uh, we've mentioned this last week on the show when, when you weren't here but you see abaddon has been declared as the yes uh, yes abaddon has been declared as the yeah, war leader and, of the chaos and did you see the the various options for the fifth marine fifth, fifth chaos space marine faction yeah I, I think one of them was uh alpha legion wasn't it uh, alpha legion well that's, yeah. that's the thing so, so alpha legion was one red corsairs and uh what was the other one it was let's bring up my notes here from last episode uh, Alpha Legion, Red Corsairs, and Crimson Slaughter. Yeah, so Crimson and, Slaughter are, are a big one as well in the, in the setting. Yeah, I mean, to um, me, it was a no-brainer. Alpha Legion. Yeah, Alpha so. Legion, yeah. Well, listen, my only problem with the choice of the three is Alpha Legion, Red, Crimson Slaughter both fit with a baton. Yeah. Astral, you know, the, the Red Corsairs, they follow Huron Blackheart, who probably wouldn't follow a baton because he wants to be War Master of the Galaxy himself. Yeah, you know, right. it, it seems a bit odd that they'd be in there, but, you know... I don't know their the, the canon story for this game, so That's I it. can't really comment. All right, well, 
But I really do think everyone should vote Alpha Legion. Yeah, yeah but I'm, I'm, maybe the votes are close now. Maybe I thought it was maybe until about the 5th of June. But anyway, in any case, uh, hopefully I voted for Alpha Legion. Um, it's, it, it was an easy choice in any way, yeah. as we covered last show as well. All right, that's about it for news, then, unless you've heard anything else I haven't heard of. Not really, no. Okay, no worries. You, you, I mean, you, you haunt Belvoir Souls more often than I do, so yeah, not, you, you get all the rumours. Not really a lot of rumour out there. I mean, the main thing is, obviously, the Space Marine Codex rumours and all that sort of stuff, but I think that it it would be silly not to release a new Codex for them when they're releasing so many new models. Yeah, that's it. All right, then, well, let's get on to the main part of the show. Yep. Knowledge is power. Hide it well. Okay, so for our system discussion, I'm not expecting a very long one this time. We sort of threw this together relatively quickly because we had originally planned to have other things on for this part of the show, but I think we'll we'll still cover up anyway. Yeah, it's a topic which really we probably should have covered before now anyway, so it's long overdue. Well, that, that being said, though, so many times I, I go to look at a system topic for a game and think, oh, we've covered that, I'm sure. They go look back to the logs and oh no we haven't <laughs> we should get onto that you know it was how long before we did Starship Combat for Rogue Trader for example well yeah that's true that's it uh, okay so tonight we want to talk about the fear and damnation system in Death Watch and yep. I'm calling this out specifically because it's it's different in Death Watch than any other game setting mainly because of the way that Battle Brothers or, or Space Marines in general work yeah they show no no fear that's it that's what it comes down to it's the no no fear thing is that this concept that, okay, a space marine is effectively immune to fear. Now, we've spoken about this on the show before, is that the way that that's interpreted narratively is, you know, a, a space marine still understands threat. He understands know. fear. He, he, he knows that he should be scared, but it's his duty and honour force him to remain. That's it, yeah. He, he knows that, a, you know, a particular enemy is, you know, he is direly outmatched, but he also can respond to that in a, in a measured manner as such. Yeah. Uh, and it's not like the uh, the fearless talent from other books where you know you have this exactly. sort of, this difficulty with drawing from combat. They are tacticians. They are smart. They yep. know when they are outgunned as such, and they respond accordingly. They will still quit the field if a battle is unwinnable, and yep. there's no there's no value in wasting lives to try and you know just slow down the enemy as such. So uh, th- yeah, that's it. They, they don't they don't feel fear, but they understand the nature of the danger of a fear causing creature. Yes, and at the end of the day, some creatures cause fear because they are inherently dangerous. You know, you look at most of the fear-causing tyrannids; they are deadly creatures. Yeah, they're not causing. Sorry, with the exception of a couple, they don't cause fear because of some psychic power. Yeah, a couple do. The majority of them cause fear because they're huge, monstrous creatures with claws that can rip a battle tank in half. That's it. You know, that scares people. Yeah. And, and there are some creatures that, that do cause fear inordinate to their size or threat or whatever because of psychic powers or other magical effects of such. But, yeah. you know, they, they're still treated the same way for the purpose of the rules here. So the book does does give you the regular fear system for non-Marines because at the end of the day, there's plenty of reasons why a space Marine may be causing fear to somebody else. Yes. Uh, or they may be among other people who are subject to fear. They may the be lead, yeah. That- the nature of a Death Watch game means that there's going to be a small squad of guys, and it could be a small squad leading an army of an army of guard. Imperial Guard. Yeah, sorry, Astro Militarum. Yes. Astro Militarum. <laughs> yeah. In which case, there's a good chance you're going to have to use the fear rules for you know the pleb soldiers who are exactly. going to turn tail and run. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at the way that fear does affect Space Marines. Whenever a battle brother who is in solo mode. Encounters a fear-causing creature. 
he will take a minus 10 on any willpower tests per rank of the fear rating of the creature. Yeah. Now, it's a little bit contradictory here because normally when you make a fear test in the regular system, fear 1 is a minus 0 or plus minus 0. Yeah. Fear 2 is a minus 10, etc. Um, and the book does say you take a minus 10 willpower per rank of the fear and then it says in brackets C below. And then below it's got the chart with fear zero, so fear one plus minus zero, yep. fear two minus ten. So, I'd say use the chart. Yeah, okay. So you're saying that, that, that a fear fear one's not going to cause any ill effect on a... On the space moon, no, I wouldn't think so. Yeah. I wouldn't think so. Okay. Right, I mean, right. a, a fear one creature is a big scary orc. I mean, that's not really the sort of thing a space moon's going to worry about. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, it, it's open to a bit of interpretation yeah. anyway, but... I mean, willpower tests, that's going to affect... Well, first off, they're not making willpower tests for fear or pinning because they're not subject to that. So really, it's only going to affect the... The cycle The librarians the in the group. Yeah. That's it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Now, if the Marines themselves are in squad mode, then they will take cohesion damage for the squad equal to the fear rating of whatever it is they're facing. Yep. Unless the... Um, the squad leader, uh, the person you know, running the squad as such, can make a willpower test with the same penalty that would have been made in solo mode. Yeah. Uh, to, to prevent that, that that cohesion loss as such. So once again, it can so, so essentially, on. the squad leader does a fear check. If they pass, there's no penalty. If they fail, I cut some points of cohesion yeah. loss. So that's what I find interesting is the fact that with the solo mode effect, there is no test to avoid that. Your willpower tests are automatically reduced yep. by a factor of the fear. If you're in squad mode and your leader makes the roll, there is no negligible effect on your character because of the fear-causing creature. Yeah, I, I'd just like to point out my biggest issue with this entire system. Yes. Is in solo mode, this means that a creature of any kind who's a psyker, who has some sort of mind-controlling power, is going to have a very easy time taking over Space Marine. And that just doesn't fit with canon with me. Okay. It just seems odd that, the, you know, the Space Marine... Tyranid Hive Tyrant with some sort of dominate power and rate, you know, fear rating three, Space Marine minus 30 on his willpower. He's going to fail. Okay, so would you, to house rule this, maybe make it so that it doesn't apply to opposed willpower tests? Well, I, I suppose you could house rule it because otherwise it does seem exceptionally potent that things which are most likely to have some sort of dominate power make it easier yet again to take over a Space Marine. Okay. Which seems a little bit broken. All right. I guess that's my way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, now, if you do encounter a horde of fear-causing creatures, the horde itself counts as having a fear rating of one higher than the what would normally be in the, the horde. The, yeah. So a, a horde of fear two creatures has an inherent fear rating of three. Yeah. Um, now, they only test once, and they only test against the highest fear rating thing in the room as such or in the conflict. conflict. Yeah. Uh, and that's it for fear on Marines. That they either have a minor effect or they have nothing as such. Yeah. Uh, now, that brings us next to Insanity. Insanity, I think, is mostly gained in these systems through the fear table, through the trauma table. Because, or the, sorry, the shock table. You know, you fail your fear roll, you roll on the shock table, you end up running around, vomiting, whatever, but you also pick up Insanity points. Yeah. With Marines that are rolling on the shock table... I see it as much harder for them to actually acquire insanity points. But they still can. You know, some psychic powers do it. Um, things like warp shock is going to apply insanity along with corruption from being exposed to, you know, denizens of the warp as such. Yep. Uh, there's various ways to gain insanity that aren't just from a fear uh, test, from a fear test, etc. 
And they have an uh, insanity chart much like the normal insanity chart from other settings with a few key differences. First off, whenever they hit a factor of 10, so 10, 20, 30, etc., they need to make a trauma roll, just like with normal characters, and they have a penalty to that trauma roll depending upon the current level of insanity they have. Yep, it gets harder to resist the more insanity they have. That's right. If they fail this roll, they acquire something called a battle trauma. Yep. Okay. They're, you roll on a chart, there's five different options, and these battle traumas are unlike your standard traumas in, in the other settings, they are permanent. Once you've picked up a battle trauma, you have that battle trauma from now on. A lot of the times, they're things that won't affect you straight away. You know, some of them, for example, you, you test or you, you resolve at the start of each new mission, for example. Uh, some of them only occur when various things actually happen in combat, but they are with your character from, from, from here on in. The only, mis- the only sort of problem I see here is that, so it happens on every factor of 10. So you've basically got to test it nine times. Well, I guess eight times, So because you're not going to test it for 100. Um, so you'll do it no, nine times, yeah. So 10, 20, 30, 40, etc., up to 90. Uh, and it does say that once you've acquired a single battlefield trauma or single battle trauma, you cannot acquire the same one again. You just re-roll. So you've got to make nine tests and there are a total of five possible battle traumas. So look, I mean, at the end of the day, you may make some of these tests, but you could have a situation where a character with a particularly poor willpower fails six tests. And they and have every it. single battle trauma there is. That's it. Well, and you have to stop making them up. Yeah, that's it. I mean, they're probably so so insane at that point anyway. If they've got all those battlefield traumas, it'd be that hard to play that the player might be saying, look, I'm just going to, this guy's going to go take his cricket bat and go home now, I think, because <laughs> yeah. it's not fun for him anymore. But uh, look, I guess that is a potential risk as well. But I, I don't think really that you'd probably fail that many rolls on, on the trauma table. But I'd find it unlikely, but you never know. That's it. Uh, now, also on the insanity track at the three different levels are the three levels of the Primarch's Curse. Now, these are distinct for each different chapter. Uh, successive chapters use the Primarch's Curse of their, found, their first founding chapter. Yep. And uh, we've covered these somewhat in each of our chapter discussions so far. We'll cover it again today when we talk about Space Wolves. But effectively, these are representations of the... I guess the mark that the Primarch has left on... The, the on, chapter on the chapter, yeah, it's the negative effects of the the Primarch's gene seed in the chapter. Yeah, but as distinct from other factors of the gene seed, like the red thirst for for yeah. you know blood angels or the yeah. you know the the Canis helix for uh, for space wolves. It's just, I, I guess, something about the the genetics of the Primarch himself that's that's had an effect on the on the uh, on the chapter as well. Yeah. So it, these once again as acquired. They are there with you for good, and the effects of each of the three levels are cumulative, unless otherwise stated in the actual in the effects. And they're itself. actually quite severe as well. By the time you get to rank three, although you, I think you'll agree when we get to the space wolf one today, the space wolves get it pretty easy actually. Oh, of course yeah. they do. The space wolves. <laughs> Who doesn't love space wolves? Yeah. <laughs> um, and at a hundred insanity, as with all the games and things, the character is removed from play. Yeah, they are just too insane to be able to continue working for the Death Watch. Yep. Okay, now corruption is the, is the third type in this sort of fair and donation section. Uh, Marines acquire corruption just like any other character in the setting through things like warp shock, through dabbling with things, fell things as such. Things that should not be. That's reading right. books. <laughs> exactly. Um, the only Psychers pick it up pretty quickly as well. That's it? it. Only difference is that they suffer no ill effects as they go up through the levels of corruption. Yep. Uh, until they hit 100. 
uh, uh, 100 points. The character is deemed to be uh, too corrupt to continue uh, serving the Emperor, and they are removed from play. It doesn't say they turn into mewling chaos born like with every other sitting in the, in the system as such. It just says, that's it. You know, they, they are deemed to be too corrupt, and they are removed from play. To what end? You may never know. Yeah. You know, maybe they're shipped off to some marine you know corruption testing facility I don't know I, I, I remember back to the original the original Space Marine novel the very first novel that came out for the setting and uh, one of the scenes and I mean I read this book when I was I was, I was a teenager you know yeah. so and I remember one of the scenes that stuck with me was uh, in, in the scene in the book there was a group of Marines who were being punished you know they, they, they'd somehow been stripped of their armour and they were now in some sort of you know punishment room and they were using them for various tests as such so uh, I remember in the scene in the book, they were working on an alloy that could resist acid. So they had a, a ring made out of it, and they put it on you know, one of these punished marines' fingers, and they had him hold his hand in a bath of acid to see whether the ring would corrode as fast as his skin would, as such. You know, so I, I don't. I think that's probably old canon these days. I don't know yeah. if it really works that way anymore, as such. But uh, <laughs> guess, uh, old canon. That's it. Yeah. Where are the Rainbow Warrior Marines? <laughs> That's it. I mean, I mean, it goes back to the fact that uh, I, I was amazed reading the Horace Heresy novels that one of the things they sort of get across in the novels is the fact that prior to the Heresy, the concept of Marines attacking Marines was anathema. Yeah, you know, it's like it's like it looks like you know it, it looks like this body is being killed by another Marine. Okay, well, someone's obviously faked that because that would never happen. Yeah, you know, Marines don't attack Marines. This is what these guys actually thought pre-Heresy as such. So, I, I guess the concept of Marines turning on another. It's probably more commonplace post heresy as such, but Battle Brothers probably wouldn't see the inherent fall of their of their kin, I guess, or of their 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 kill team as their corruption sort of peters up, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but that's it for those three systems. Like I said it's not a very long system discussion today, no. but I thought it's something that's worth worth chatting about. Yep. Uh, any other thoughts for your part, Mike, on these sort of three things for Space Marines? Not particularly. I, I've voice my concerns about the the willpower thing because you know otherwise first time your squad goes up against some slanesh demons yeah they're in for a really bad time um other than that it seems to carry the the flavor of marines and they should know no fear you know it's not they're completely immune to fear they they still feel it they still understand it they just don't lose control. Loot, don't lose control. They can still act in, a, in an appropriate manner. And we also learn here that they shall not become mutants as well because yes. they're <laughs> affected by corruption. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, then let's move right along. All subsequents report to the administratum for career assignment. Okay, Mike, before we start talking about the Space Wars chapter, you better air your grievances, as mentioned before. I mean, you sort of touched on it briefly in the last segment there about yeah, I mean... what your issue with Space Wars is. I suppose it goes back to second edition. It was very obvious when second edition came along that someone working for Games Workshop really loves Space Wolves. Every, you know, at the time, there were only a few codexes at the very beginning. And for some reason, Space Wolves was one of those codexes. And they had everything that Marines had, only better. And that, of course, led to a lot of players early on playing Space Wolves. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you? Why would I play with a normal Dreadnought when I can play using Bjorn the Fell-Handed, who's better in every single way. Um, And it's always continued. It's obvious that there's a lot of emphasis that Space Wolves are the best. You know, Space Wolves are the best at everything. And it just 
just sticks a little bit. I'm just not a fan. Okay, you're 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 not a status quo person. You're you're a buck the system and and, and play the underdog sort of one. Are you not, no, not, not the best one? Not really. It's just that I don't see why they would be the best at everything okay. because that just doesn't fit with anything that's described anywhere else in the settings, systems, canon, anything. I mean, my only problem with Space Wars has always been the fact that I'm not as good at painting faces as I am other things, and a lot of Space Wars figures don't have helmets. Yeah. Yeah, for reasons that will become apparent shortly in the setting for, in the yeah, for yeah. Death Watch. Yeah, I mean, and I suppose that the other problem I have with them is, they, from a writing point of view, they've always come across very lazy. Okay. It's very lazy writing to just say, yeah, they're Vikings. We're not even going to change the names of anything. They're just Vikings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Well, let's talk about the, the history of the Space Wolves. Okay. Uh, okay, so their Primarch, obviously, was Lehman Russ. That's yes. right. It's yes. not just a tank. It's also a Primarch yes. as well. Yes, of course, because he was the best Primarch. He got a tank named after him. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> you see, you keep doing this, aren't you? All right, so um, he was, uh, as all the children of were, scattered by the winds of chaos. Uh, and found himself on the planet of Fenris, which was a death world with uh, extremes of climate. So most of the year completely frozen, yep. uh, but for some parts in the year it became hot and volcanic uh, because of an elliptical orbit. And uh, <laughs> uh, also beset by a number of very dangerous creatures, you know, most popular which being the Fenrisian wolves. Yes. Uh, now, uh, Russ himself was originally found and raised by a group of tribesmen, but over time eventually found himself in the court of uh, King Thengir, uh, one of the sort of planetary rulers. And over time, after many years, he managed to actually rise to the position of Wolf King himself. Yes. Now, the Emperor, while searching for his sons, you know, he'd already found Horus, I think that, I think that Lehman Russ was found quite early. Yes. But, but the Emperor found him because he heard stories about this Wolf King on this planet who had never been defeated in single combat. Yeah. And the Emperor was sure this must be one of his sons. So he went to Fen- Fenris and he challenged this man to single combat and defeated him. Yep. And being the first time that he'd ever been defeated in single combat, uh, Lehman Russ just you know, obviously figured out that he, that he had to follow this man who turned out to be his father. Yes. And uh, so he was given command of the 5th Legion, uh, which was then called the Space Wolves, after, once again, the Fenrisian Wolves. And he was incorporated into the Great Crusade, with Fenris being set up as the founding world for the Space Wolves, with a you know, fortress monastery being established there. Yeah. Um, so I, I, during the, the Great Crusade, and even into the Horus Heresy, uh, the Space Wolves quickly found themselves at a sort of, uh, in a rivalry, I guess, with the Dark Angels. Yeah, I mean, mentioned this in an earlier episode, but there's a couple of stories about how this came into being. And now the stories that the Space Wolves tell are either that um, uh, during the Horus Heresy, uh, at one point, Lionel Johnson, the Primarch of the Dark Angels, was seeking extra glory for himself. He he pushed ahead of the of the rest of his uh, rest of the forces and such, didn't collaborate with his allies, and he ended up leaving the Space Wolves exposed on the flank. And they were attacked and took significant losses. Uh, Lehman Russ challenged Johnson over, L. Johnson over to a duel over this particular slight, which they uh, which they had, or it may not have been them, it may have been you know, another space wolf or another dark angel. But in any case, the duel ended in a stalemate, and the two sides left with a sort of mutual hate slash respect as such. Yeah. Uh, the second story 
was that during a, a planetary war that involved both legions, uh, the planetary leader actually insulted Lehman Russ's honor. And uh, during the final assault on the uh, planetary palace, L. Johnson actually killed the leader before uh, Russ could good. arrive, uh, denying Russie satisfaction. Russ was so annoyed he punched L. Johnson in the face, and they ended up uh, fighting for over a week before Lehman Russ finally realized how immature they were being and sort of laughed off the matter. Yep. L. Johnson, you know, annoyed at being laughed at, punched Lehman Russ unconscious, and then left the planet with his forces. Yes. So, whichever story you believe, the the outcome of this is that these two have... See, see my version is... Yep. Dark Angels, they just don't like dicks. <laughs> it's, it's, it's probably a whole bunch of space wolfers out there that might. They're, un- they're tuning out of this podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not my fault they follow a sucky chapter. Uh, okay. Um, anyway, the, the main point here is that this rivalry is not necessarily an outright hatred. There, there is a level of mutual respect yeah. between these two groups. Because in both cases, the matter was partly resolved through you know, ritual combat as such. You know, there, there was more to it than just, we hate you, you hate us, etc. Anyway, so getting back to the Horus Heresy. Uh, now, the Space Wolves were sent during the Heresy by the Emperor to Prospero because he'd already discovered that Magnus the Red was a psyker. Yep. And he sent the Space Wolves to Prospero to bring Magnus back to Terra for who knows what horrible... Re-education. Re-education, that's right. Yes. Um, And, and of course, they ended up fighting the Thousand Suns on Prospero. They basically devastated the planet. Yeah. The story is that Horus found out that this was going to happen. He changed the orders before they got to Rust to say, go to the planet and kill everyone. Yes. So Russ, quite happy to do that, having had a couple of falling outs with the Thousand Suns as well. What a shock. Um, proceeded to go there and quite happily perform those orders. That's it. And Magnus and the surviving members of the Thousand Suns fled into the Eye of Terror. Yeah. Uh, now, because after this, uh, Russ discovered that while in this massive battle for Prospero, which was more drawn out than it needed to be, he had missed the Battle of Terror, basically, yeah. which had resulted in the effective near-death of the Emperor as well. So, angry over this, he gathered his forces up, what forces he had with him, and led that group into the Eye of Terror to pursue his enemies and seek some form of revenge. Yeah. And that was the last time anybody ever heard from Lehman Russ and that particular group. Yeah. Um, it, it took the Space Wolves seven years to finally sort of accept that loss and, and, and appoint a new uh, leader as such, which they, at that point... New chapter was, master, yeah. Yeah, which was Bjorn the Fell-Handed in his pre-Dreadnought state. I don't know. I think a Dreadnought would be a pretty good chapter master. <laughs> it, uh, no, he definitely was not a Dreadnought at the time he was appointed yeah. head of the Space Wolves. Um, but in all the years since, they've always continued to set a a place at the feasting table for Russ should he ever return. Yeah. Uh, so along with their regular campaigns against whatever forces they fight, many times the Space Wolves have also engaged in what they would call a great hunt. And this is where the various um, companies split off in various directions and start searching space for any sign of Russ's return. Uh, so far, they've been unsuccessful, uh, but there's stories that each great hunt has started when a rune priest has received a visitation or a vision from Russ himself telling them to begin the hunt. And because of that, every single great hunt has always 
struck a, a significant blow against the enemies of mankind. Yeah. Despite the fact that they've never actually achieved their outcome of finding them with their missing Primarch. Yeah. I think it's important to point out at this stage that when the Horus Heresy was over and the Ultramarines declared that probably legions in char- under the charge of just one person wasn't a good idea and they all split up into chapters. Yep. Space Wolves were originally one of the chapters which completely disagreed and almost the second war started over that along with, I think it was Roy Gordon who also disagreed with the um, Imperial Fists. But, yeah, yeah, eventually cooler heads prevailed and they did split up. But there aren't many founding chapters. Well, there's, well, there's the thing Space because Wars. the whole point with the Space Wars was that Despite the uh, Codex uh, Astartes laying out the maximum 1,000 men, because of the frailties in their gene seed and the Canis Helix that caused them to devolve into Wolfgar over time, they never had enough men to form a second founding. The, the only second founding of the Space Wolves was the Wolf Brothers. Yep. It was done when the Space Wolves were already below capacity anyway. They were just... It's like everybody else is having second foundings. You better have one too. So we're going to break you in half and form this second this second one. And basically the, the Wolf Brothers, still affected by the Canis Helix, without the support of the core chapter, basically failed within... Devolved the, and fell apart. That's right, devolved in years. So there's been no subsequent foundings of Space Wolves after that first failed attempt, basically. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's rare that they would ever get anywhere near the numbers. Well, this, this is it. it this is where canon has changed again, because it always used to be, oh, well, there's thousands of Space Wolves, and they never just never bother. Yeah. Um, well, they were originally 13, thir- 13 great companies. Yeah. And the and Lehman Russ led the 13th company into I- I- into the eye of terror as such, and hence depleting their numbers sub- substantially. Yeah. But um, you're right. I mean, it, it's this one of the things that very, at various points in times changes. But right now, they are regarded to be under like, strength. Yeah, I mean, at least not enough to warrant the formation of a, 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 a subsequent family, which probably would fail as well. Yeah. That's it. So that's really the, the the main part of the history of the space wars. Probably what you need to know coming into into Death Watch. Yeah. All right. So, what is the appeal of space wars to the Death Watch? I basically saw. Shut up. I can see you want to say something. <laughs> I, 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 I saw three main things. First off is that they are one of the, uh, the the chapters, I believe, which has a very strong combat doctrine, particularly oh, yes, in, in Close Assault. You know, they're, they're, I'm not saying they're not good at what they do. I'm yeah. just saying I think they're lazily written. Okay. Um, second thing is I can see why they would be considered to be expert trackers as well. Yep. Um, along with their wolf sensors, they come from a world which is, you know, all, all about the hunt and about finding these dangerous creatures. So when you talk about the Death Watch, which is here to hunt down dangerous Xenos, you know, having an expert tracker and someone used to harsh environments is probably quite useful to your kill team. Uh, and the third thing is that I see Space Wolves as one of the more socially gifted uh, chapters as such. You know, yeah. the, the, the more of their members are gregarious than other, other chapters might yeah, see. They've got a more boisterous outlook. They believe in the art of storytelling and all this sort of thing and they're less about written dusty books and all that sort of stuff. They're more about teaching and they're more about leadership through showing rather than leadership through telling. Yeah. So, I, I mean, yeah. They, they've definitely got some advantages which would benefit a Death Watch group. Yeah. Right. So, when it comes to actually building a space, also, let's look at the, the statistics in the book. They get plus five perception and plus five fellowship. So, there's that sort of mixture of the expert tracker and the gregarious warrior sort of mixing it together. 
Um, they get the Wolf Sense of Solomon Ability, which we'll cover in a second. And they also get the Sons of Rust demeanor. So yep. that, that's their, their basic build. Um, without any founding chapters, second foundings, there's no one to bother copying that, but that's what they get. Yeah. So when it comes to their actual solo and squadron ability, so that Wolf Sense is one I mentioned is their solo, means that you can re-roll failed perception tests and you always count as having uh, the dark sight talent when not wearing a helmet or other other environmentally sealed armor on the head. Yeah. So hence we come back to that sort of the concept of Space Wolves always having no helmet. Yes. So do you think that the trade-off of losing the power armor <laughs> well, there armor were, on the head, the, getting the, the, the dark sight talent. Is... There were other benefits to not wearing a helmet. I think they're covered in one of the other books. Um, you, you gain a slight bonus to cohesion. You get other bonuses as well. Mm. Um, I mean, look, let's, let's face it. Most in most of the miniatures, the sergeants don't wear helmets. Yeah, I mean, I don't see a problem with it unless you're fighting in some sort of vacuum or poisonous atmosphere, in which case you probably want to put it on. Plus, if you're a space wolf, you've probably got a pretty rocking biker beard that you want to show off. <laughs> That's right. It's probably got bits of bone and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, such, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you may as well go the whole hog. If you're going to go down that path, you know, do it properly. All right. Uh, okay, their squad attack pattern is tooth and nail. So this means they can... So it, members of the group can re-roll grapple tests... Probably not as exciting. <laughs> Probably one of the most useless That's abilities right, yeah. ever. I, I think our listeners just heard your eyes roll. <laughs> um, but they also get a they they also get additional bonuses for outnumbering foes. Yep. And bonuses, stacking bonuses as they go through levels um, to dodge and parry melee attacks. Yeah, which is very powerful. Yeah. So if your group is going to sort of be expecting to be fighting in close combat, not a bad not a bad attack pattern to be using. Yeah, definitely. Uh, now, their squad defense pattern, which is pack tactics, is one of those defense patterns which is actually more attack-based. So this means that um, uh, when you're attacking, um, another battle brother in the group can give up their reaction for the turn to make your attack unparryable or undodgeable. Yes. So Excellent when you're fighting against things like Eldar, yeah. Dark Eldar, some Tau stuff, you know, the... The fast athletic types, that's going to be really useful. Yeah, when you've got the guy, but, when you've got the big hitter, when you've got Bjorn the Fell-Handed there, you know, someone yeah. distracts him briefly while Bjorn the Fell-Handed cleaves them cleaves in, half. in half with a giant lightning claw. Yeah, I mean, but as you said, it's not really a defensive pattern, so you're going to be a little bit lacking if you st- if you suffer a, a severe counter-attack. Yeah. But hopefully... Well, they're, they're not going to be, they're going to be. Yeah. <laughs> it's the other person that has to look you up the reaction. Yeah. All right, so the Space War Progression chart gives you um, Corrals all the way to plus 20. Your choice of any performer skill. Awesome. So you're fantastic for Death Watch, I think. Yep. Well, no, I think that's more for storytelling. Yeah. You know, you'd have to go performance storytelling, really. Yeah. Uh, tracking to plus 20 and wrangling. So, you know, they, they, those Fenrisian wolves are often used as mounts by the Space Wolves, so you can see why they have wrangling as a skill. Yeah. Uh, they get the access to the talents Hardy, um, hatred Chaos Space Marines, which seems kind of redundant because I th- we think that most Marines hate Chaos Space Marines. Yeah, but, but they get an additional, an additional bonus. bonus. Hit, yep. uh, heightened senses, taste. Yep. Um, and talented corrals, talented tracking. I don't know. I have to say here, yep. have you seen what they wear? I don't think any one of them's got any sense of taste whatsoever. <laughs> uh, so yeah, talented corrals, talented tracking, and wisdom of the ancients. Yeah, talented tracking is probably going to be very useful. Um, yeah. And Hardy, obviously, always good. Yeah. 
Okay, chapter trappings for the Space Wolves. They get a choice of either a Wolf Pelt, which gives them a plus two and all in two and eight tests, or some form of Runic Totem, which will either give them plus one on Righteous Fury damage, or plus three to any one drive or pilot skill of their choice, or plus three to awareness tests. Yeah. I mean, none of them are overly powerful, but they're all... Yeah, none of them stand out particularly terrible, none of them stand out particularly fantastic. Pick whichever one you think fits. That's it. Okay, psychic powers. Um, now, first off, we've got Fury of the Wolf Spirits. This summons two wolves that join the character, and Ackman the character does. Uh, they can individually attack, and they automatically hit unless dodge. So they don't roll to attack, the opponent just rolls to dodge, basically. Yeah, and um, uh, they have different damage types depending on which one, which wolf it is attacking. But enemies that are damaged by them have to roll on the shock table unless they're immune to fear. Yeah, so they're not big damage, but they're effectively two automatic hitting attacks per turn, which cause fear. Which cause fear? Automatically cause fear. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty taking down hordes, for example. Yeah, they're pretty potent. Yeah. Um, Next up is living lightning. Uh, so this means that uh, once per turn, because it is sustained, lightning strikes one enemy for 1d10 times psi rating damage. So it could be quite deadly with the shocking quality. Yeah. But the target automatically gets to make a plus zero agility test to halve the damage. Oh, wow. They get to half it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the old D&D saving throw, really. You know, it's saving yeah. half. Yeah, I know. But this is pretty potent. Yeah. You know, if you're you're hitting with psi rating four, that's one d ten times four. Yeah, that's up to Which forty. Is between damage. four and forty, yeah, I don't know if I'd rather all forty ten. Yeah. <laughs> Try and get that bell curve working for me. Yeah. All right. Um, Stormcaller uh, means that the Rune Priest and all allies within five times your psi rating uh, cause a penalty of five times your psi rating on all attacks against them. Yeah. Melee and ranged. Not a bad one, really. It's quite cheap too. This next one sort of gets me. This one's expensive as well. For 1,000 XP, I don't know if this is really worth it. So this one, for in a range of 150 times your psi rating meters, um, all creatures with the hoverer or flyer trait, yep. or flying vehicles, must test, and they take a... The test depends on whether it's a vehicle or a, or a creature. They take a penalty on this test of five, minus five times your psi rating. Um, if, and they need to just to move through the area. And even then, their speed is halved. Um, any primitive and thrown weapons uh, in the area, allied or otherwise, or, or allied enemy, take a minus five times your siren penalty. And normal range attacks take a minus two times the siren penalty. Is that worth, for your mind, a thousand XP? Depends what you're fighting against. If you're fighting against an army and it's full of gargoyles, yeah. I think that that's worth it. Yeah, Halve their speed and... Half their speed, make it so they can't move so much and reduce their ballistic skill, which is pretty terrible to start with. But it's very situational. And the fact that you have to spend so much XP for something that's so situational makes it a bit risky. Yeah, all right. I mean, narrative-wise as well. So if if you're talking about a flyer who suddenly can't move through the area, what if they are a vehicle or other creature that needs to continue moving forward in order to remain aloft, like i.e. most flying creatures. Yes. <laughs> they require aerodynamics as such. Yeah. Yeah, so it doesn't I mean, really rep- represent that. I mean, yeah, you'd, really the GM is going to have to make some calls if they start using this ability to stop things 
which have to move forward to or crash. Yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose you could say now that they're skirting the edge of the storm as such, but it's a massive area. It's, you know, 150 meters times your psi rating. So yeah, that's, yeah. you know, and of course, up, you know, up to a high psi rating, that can be up to a cut. Yeah. That being said, if, it's, if you talk about winds, though, I mean, you know, uh, with enough wind, an object can still remain aloft. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, this yeah, is our, our friend our friend who flew a plane backwards because he flew into such a heavy headwind that the plane actually went backwards but still remained up. Yeah, that, that's fine. But when you're talking about land speeders with no wings, which are just essentially <laughs> metallic bricks that hover, yes. it's a bit more difficult. Yeah, that's true. Okay, and the last one is Thunderclap. So um, all foes and allies within 10 metres times your psi rating will take 1d5 times siren damage, reduced by toughness. Um, if they reduce by armor, provided they're wearing sealed head armor, if they're not wearing, if they're if any part, you know, it basically hits the head. So if they're yeah. not wearing head armor, they, they take damage without, without armor. Um, and must ha- uh, test toughness time five, minus five times your side rating, or be deafened for d10 rounds. Yeah. So It's useful. The only problem is if, you're in a group with a lot of space wolves. Most of them aren't going to be wearing helmets. Oh, yeah. He's going to cause some problems. That's right. Once again, back to your psi rating yeah. for, you know, you could be dealing 20 damage to your allies. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. quite substantial. So I'd say that probably situational again. That's it. All right, let's move on to the space wolves Primarch's Curse, like I mentioned yeah. earlier in the show. So for them, it is Curse of the Wolfen. So at level one, their fellowship is treated as 10 lower, with all space marines outside of their kill team, yep. and with all non-space marines, it's minus twenty. Yeah. So you know there goes that gregarious nature as such. Yeah. Um, at level two, whenever they inflict the first wound in combat, they have to make a perception test at plus twenty. Now they want to fail this because if they pass, they are so overcome by the smell of blood that they can only take a half action on the next turn. Um, and then the rank three one is that they must test willpower with a minus twenty penalty at any point in combat they want to either give ground or withdraw from combat. Yeah. So I don't think these are particularly arduous primarchs curves. I have to say the level two one is probably one of the softest ones there is. Yeah. If you cause damage as the first person in combat. Well, the first time they cause damage in combat. Yeah. yeah. I mean that's going to happen once a combat. Yeah. So, so you, one test of combat, you lose a half action. You lose a half action. That's pretty soft compared yeah. to unless someone you, like the Iron Hands. Well. Compared to the Iron Hands, that's pretty damn soft. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, now, advanced specialty specifically for the Space Wolves. There's two. Yep. There is the Wolf Scout. Yep. Now, I'm a bit of two minds about whether you would actually use a Scout in Death Watch. Well, scouts are done a little bit differently in Space Wolves. Yeah. So I, I suppose it kind of fits, maybe. And also, remember, sometimes they're not going to send their best person off to the Death Watch. But considering the stats and bonuses when you create a Death Watch character, they, they're pretty damn good. That's true. Mm. Another one is one that we both like, despite your feelings about Space Wolves, which is the Wolf Priest. The Wolf Priests just look awesome. Yeah, a combination um, of Chaplain and Apothecary, basically. Yeah, well, that's it, because... Space Wolves don't have their own dedicated apothecarium. The wolf priests or chaplains are expected to do it as well, which makes sense for their style. I mean, they look great. The the models always looked great as well. The the picture in the Death Watch book is fantastic as well. Yeah, I mean, and it's a 
excellent one. The only problem is it's Space Wolf. But, as I said, if you're a Space Wolf player and you're a Space Wolf fan and you've managed to stick around this long into the podcast, yeah, yeah, you're going to love it. Can I say, I I did, as an experiment once, try to make the highest Fellowship Dreadnought that I could. Yep. And I I used the Space Wolf as a base. Yeah. To get the highest possible Fellowship. And I managed to get... Why do you want to make the highest possible Fellowship Dreadnought? I just want to see how high you can get a Dreadnought's Fellowship. Now, I think the character was 90... Before the penalty for becoming a dreadnought, so they still have like a sixty fellowship. Nice, you know. <laughs> nice. Very seductive. Very smooth. That's right. That's right yeah. <laughs> and of course, since it's space wolf, he could have you know the massive corrals with talented corrals. That's right. Yeah. yeah like, wow. Party dreadnought. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, and of course, excessive chapters. There are none for the space wolves because yep. the wolf brothers, even despite existing, no longer do. Yes. Uh, okay, so just a couple of tips on on playing your space wolf. I guess remember that they come from a very honourable background. You know, like I think to Marines in general, honour is important, but I think it's it's doubly so for space wolves. Not, not, I mean, in much of things, personal honour is big for them. The honour of their chapter, even the honour of their team. Yeah. You know, that they, they, their kill team or their squad, they are, they are very well drawn to as such. So. I have to say, it should be quite easy to figure out how to play a Space Wolf. Just look up the, you know, Viking mythology, you know, books about them, any of that sort of stuff, and draw upon that because it's very heavily, amazingly heavily drawn from that. Yeah. Um, so that should give you a good start point. Especially for names as well. Can, especially yeah, yeah. for names. And the, the other thing to remember is the fact that Unlike some of the other chapters, because they have successor chapters, Space Wolves, they all come from Fenris. That's it. Absolutely, without doubt, all of them. So that gives them a very common bond between every single Space Wolf. That's it. Um, do remember as well, if you have got a Dark Angel of the Rip and you want to play up that feud, of course, that the nature of the feud is one of mutual respect. Yeah. You know, just despite the aggression to each side, it's not just straight at hatred. And the last thing is, is remember that all Space Wolves are fighting a battle with the Canis Helix. You know, they are trying to suppress the beast within. Yeah. So make sure you play your character like, you know, like a man with the heart of a beast, basically. That, that you, it, it seems almost inevitable that they will all eventually succumb to the Canis Helix and devolve into Wolfen, basically. So Yeah, but try to avoid playing up as too much teenage angst. They're they're not really like that. Like we said, they're quite gregarious. They're they're looking more to leave a lasting legacy and a story that is going to be worthwhile telling to others in future generations. Just remember, it's a Games Workshop game, not a a White Wolf game. Yes. (laughs) That about covers Space Wolves. I think so. Yeah, so Mike, you're happy that you you got through that? You managed to live through the, the Space Wolf discussion? Yeah. Okay, yeah. there are other chapters coming up I'm sure you don't like as well. I mean, you, you weren't a big fan of White Scars before him, were you? Um, I don't mind White Scars. The only other chapter I really don't like much are Imperial Fist, but it's not a... It, it's... What about Raven Guard? Do you like Raven Guard? I don't mind Raven Guard. Okay. I don't right. mind Raven Guard. I don't mind Imperial Fist. So they're just not my favourites because I think Iron Warriors are better. Yeah. But... You, think, you think going to combat in bright yellow armour is not, not for you? Not really, no. <laughs> I, you know... The master tactician, the, the lord of siege warfare, you'd think bright bright yellow and red, probably not the best choice, but I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? All right, then. <laughs> Let's keep going. Yep. Attention, loyal servants of the Imperium. Stand by to receive orders. All right, so for today's plot hook, yep. I've tried to sort of mix elements of our first two conversations about, you know, sort of 
Insanity, but also the Space Wolves. And so here's my plot hook. So it's about an insane space wolf. <laughs> you can make it go mine. That's, 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 that's the point of these plot is they're open for interpretation. So I said, okay. Uh, a member of the Kill Team, perhaps even the Librarian, has recently experienced what can only be called a vision from their lost Primarch. In the days since the vision, events around the Battle Brother have concurred as per the portent of the visitation. Was this truly miraculous guidance, or are the forces of chaos attempting to manipulate the kill team for their own ends? So I guess this is the whole thing where if you received a vision like that, you know, if, if, if you know, a warrior or a space marine received what they perceived to be a, a vision from their Primarch, I think it's human nature and possibly marine nature to want to believe that it's real. That it's real, you know, because it places a level of import upon the individual as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think the GM could have a lot of fun with this if, you know, they decide early on that this is either, you know, maybe this is what it is on face value. Maybe there's more to it than it seems. Maybe it is actually a, a some sort of chicanery as such to to fool the character. I mean, would, would you would you use this sort of plot or how would you, what would you do with this as such? I think you could use this plot, but I think this is more of a plot that you'd work in as a sort of, individual character plot to work through a chronicle so it's something you'd give them early on and you'd use aspects of it in continuing stories rather than a plot line for just one game yeah i think it would be difficult to do in just one game oh definitely i mean if you know for the librarian as well i mean you'd probably want to do it for a librarian that is from a chapter which would you know use things like visions important you know like silver skulls or space walls you know probably wouldn't fit so much with a chapter that sees psychic powers as a tool as such and it's not not, not about sort of belief or that sort of stuff but, yeah I mean, you know. yeah I, I think that could be. yeah probably also work with, with a marine from a chapter whose primark is missing dead. or yeah. is missing yes <laughs> probably best to come from yeah, one of the ones where the, the primark might still possibly be alive so obviously silver you know iron hands might be a little bit difficult yeah that's it I mean I guess silver skulls come from ultramarines originally and their primark is technically alive (laughs) if not comatose but yeah or you could always use it as a a portent from the emperor as well if you you know if they don't know who their primarch is yeah alright so just one idea there for a plot hook just to you know if you if you do want to have that sort of mysticism about your characters and and give them some sort of thing to follow and and I guess with these you can also uh, lay down the it's always hard to do prophecy in games it's the same as doing time travel as such because the the, the the inherent dick in every player you know attempts to specifically make things not work out just so they can say that I broke the system as such you know so yeah. but yeah if you can make it work it can go quite successfully as well yeah alright let's jump to the next part okay reveal the omniscia for it is the source of all power alright then on to war gear and today I have chosen to talk about Terminator armour yeah. Or, as it's probably known in canon, Tactical Dreadnought Armour. Yes. Uh, the reason I want to discuss this is because, you know, I, I think it's something a lot of characters in Death Watch, a lot of players may say, oh, I, it, I, I'd love to... It's what you get... want to aspire to. That's right, yeah. And I, I guess when it does finally come into your game, how you use it, what it does, you know, it, it could inherently break the game, it could oh, change the game as such. It's definitely going to change the game. Especially if you, you've got to decide, I guess, as a gym, is it going to be just something that one character has? You know, so if you've got someone who's taken, you know, first company veteran uh, as, a, as an advanced specialty and wants to get Terminator on, but everybody else can't, yeah. what effect will that have on the game, for example? So, Mike, why don't you give us the, the important 
rules about Terminator Armor first. Okay, so the main things about Terminator Armor um, gives you the auto stabilized trait. So move and fire heavy weapons, that sort of stuff. Yep. Gives you plus 30 strength instead of plus 20. The sensors count as an awe specs. Um, if there are multiple people with Terminator Army in the group, the squad's effective rank for the purposes of determining whether its support range increases by one. Um, obviously, it has very high armor rating all over. Counselors have 14 all over, I think, yeah. Yeah, f- yeah. yeah 14 all over. Counselors having a force field of protection rating of 35, no chance of overloading as well. Um, but it does have some drawbacks too. Yeah. It's very heavy. So it's minus 20 on all agility checks. You can never roll dodge. Um, you can still parry though. Um, and you can only have specific weapons which are loaded out at the start of the game and they can't be changed for later on. Yeah. Which, you, can't, you can't just pick up a, a, yeah, a bolt on the ground or something. Yeah, yeah. It, it. it's technically it's attached to the hand. Yeah. Um, and it's very expensive to get in, 100 requisition points. Yeah, and 60 of that is the armor, and 40 of that is the weapons. Yeah. There you go. I mean, it's a good choice if you're doing, you know, Space Hulk missions. Um, probably not such a great choice if you're doing scouting or stealth missions. <laughs> That's it. So, I mean, what do you see as potential problems if you've got a mixed, a mixed group of some people in regular Parama and one person in Terminator armor? I mean, the speed, I think, is going to slow... They're going to slow the whole group down first. They're, they're going to slow the whole group down to start yeah. with. That's the first thing. Um, second thing is, you can forget stealthing around. You can forget um, getting in a rhino. They can't travel in rhinos. Yeah. Um, climbing. Climbing, forget yeah. it. Yeah. Even though it's strength-based. I mean, the, whatever you're climbing still has to be able to support the weight of Terminator and it weighs 400 kilos on its own. Yeah. Um, those are the main issues you're going to face. I suppose that's it, really. I mean, okay. it, it's mostly it's the it's the same issues as the dreadnought, but not quite as bad. Because <laughs> you can still take the Terminator armor off. Yes. I mean, Mike, if you were playing Death Watch, is Terminator armor something you'd actually aspire towards? Like, it, it is the the benefit of the additional armor, the ability to hold the the heavy weapons, you know, that good given the extreme cost and the drawbacks in your mind? Um, depends what class I was playing. Yeah. I mean, if I'm a Devastator, yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it will depend a lot on what you're playing, how you're playing it, and how you've played your character up to that point. I mean, if, if you're a Raven Guard who's always been sneaky and stealthy, it's not going to be something you're ever going to want for that character. Um... And that's what it's going to come down to, I guess. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think it's an interesting choice. I, I, I've always liked Terminator Armor. Yeah. And uh, I think it's something certainly in, in Deathmatch I'd like to get, but it's one of those things where you wouldn't want to have a character which has like their own person, which is they're always using it. It had to be yeah. on an ad hoc basis as required for a mission. Yeah, it would be a case that before the mission starts, you'd look at it and you'd go, do I really need to take the Terminator Armor? Yes or no? Okay. And, Yeah. In, in those situations, if you take it at the right times, I think it will definitely help your character and the rest of the group. Because, I mean, there are certain things that a Terminator can do that other characters won't be able to do. Yeah, exactly. And 
Yeah. And vice versa as well. And vice versa as well, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a tactical choice. That's it. I mean, the whole group of turnout armor is really going to set the, the tone for your game as such. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if everyone takes it, that changes the direction of the game and that actually makes it easier than if just one person takes it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, then. Let's move on. Yes. My lord, the information you requested is now available for your review. So onto our review, and we've covered a few of these recently, but the Games Masters kit for Death Watch. Yeah, as before, we will exclude the um, adventure. The, no, the screen oh, from, yeah, from, the from screen. this particular one because it's the, a screen. The screens are much the same. They don't they don't have what we always say. They don't have the um, critical, critical charts, tables. but they do have you know weapon charts, despite the fact that every single stat block has weapons in them. But we're not going to keep. Uh, we're not going to keep flogging that dead horse. Let's talk about what's actually in the booklet that comes with I love the what you say we're not going to, even though you've already done it. Yeah, well, Carry yeah. on. It's my podcast, I can do that. Uh, okay, so the Games Master's Kit for Death Watch starts off first off with a module, which is called Shadow of Madness. Now, I will admit, I've never run this module. Yep. I have read this module. It is, in my mind, a different style of Death Watch module, and I think in a good way. Uh, because it really presents opportunities that you wouldn't normally think of in in Death Watch, like both interactive opportunities, um, it, it, I guess planning opportunities. Okay, so let me talk. About, I don't want to give too many spoilers for it. But let's talk about some of the things that are, that are really quite good for it. First thing is that it starts off in Watch Forces Arioc, and it does a good job of having a, a good opening scene. It's not just like you know, you, you, okay, the gem pulls out the book and says, okay, guys, you're standing in the watch captain's chambers. He says, your mission is this. Now go to the Thunderhawk and, get, and go, you know, and that's it. You, your entire interaction on the space station was... Being first, told what to do. That's right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's got some scenes actually on Arioch that helped set, I guess, the scene for the Watch Fortress as well, which will actually come into our next part of our show as well. But I, yeah. I quite like that. Uh, secondly, there is... A big focus on the Xeno side of uh, Death Watch in this case. Because remember, that the Death Watch is part of the Auto Xenos. That first and foremost, they hunt aliens. Yes. And I think that you know when you talk about common enemies of the Imperium, it's common to put in things like Chaos Space Marines and demons and such. You know, but at the end of the day, Death Watch is focused on the aliens and, and the threat in uh, in Shadows of Man or Shadow of Madness is entirely an alien threat. And we're not talking here about you know an alien force. Certainly, there are a large number of Tau and Crew in the the scope of the game, and they'll be interacted with on various levels, everything from combat to actual straight out conversation. But the actual threat is alien technology, something completely unrelated to the uh, the, the Tau and, and the Crew. I mean, what we're talking about here is a world that is a battlefield, and the battle the battle there has somehow. Accident, accidentally unearthed and awakened ancient Xenos technology. Yeah. And that's what the real threat is. And the, the the effect of this technology is it's driving everybody on the planet, both, you know, good and bad, mad. Uh, and so they're dealing with this sort of, this ongoing madness, both in their allies and their enemies as well, uh, while they try to discover the source. Um, now, the, the latter part of the module has a really nice sort of meta-narrative where the PCs, okay, they're focused on what they're doing, but they also have some command over some substantial other happenings as well. 
And so they, they we feel like they're part of something a lot larger than just what the kill team is doing because they get to resolve through various mechanics what happens with the other forces under their control as such and, and the actions that they choose to take to to resolve the plot. So yeah. um, overall, I think a very well-written module. I, really, I would like to run it if I was ever going to do Death Watch again. Um, it's certainly one of the better modules I've read for it. And it, Despite being short, it's got a lot of good meat in it as well. Okay. All right. The second part of the book, well, it's called Appendix, has in it, uh, first off, a whole bunch of NPCs from Watch Fortress area, both people that are there constantly and people that visit there from time to time. And with every single NPC, they include three plot hooks, basically, or, yeah. or ideas for how you might incorporate them into your game. So I, I, I quite like that, different ways of doing things with each character and a, a number of compelling characters, including some good good artwork as well. Yeah. Um, and then finally, the last section of the book is basically some expansion on the options of mission building. So mission building, we're not talking here as a system, we're talking more about the the narrative concepts of how you tie the system into the storyline and such and how you make it something that the players want to be involved in the characters, uh, you know, want to do as such. Yeah. So a uh, kind of little part in there as well. So, I mean, that's basically what's in the, the Game Master kit. They're not huge, like with all the Game Master's kits, they're, they're relatively small, but I think definitely it's worth the investment both for... A very good adventure, um, some nice NPCs, and some some stuff you may choose to learn from in, in terms of making more interesting missions for your game as well. Yeah. So uh, look, it's a game master. I'm not going to give it a rating out of ten. So I'm just going to say it's you know with all game masters kit, it's worth picking up uh, if you're going to run that game setting and uh, do check it out. Yep. All right. So let's uh, move on to our final discussion. Okay. Ignorance is a blessing. The data you requested is unavailable. All right, so our final conversation for the day comes from a Facebook comment we got from a guy by the name of Dennis, literally just today. I, I was racking my brain for what we can talk about, and then, you know, lo and behold, this, this, this message comes through, and I'm like, this is great. We'll talk about this. Yep. So Dennis has asked, um, one of the troubles he had in his game is creating what you might call, I guess, compelling settings, environments, you know, like when... When his players want to travel from point A to point B, that's all it is to them. You know, we're at point A, we'll go to point B, let's move on, what's the next What's the next combat, what's the next action in the game as such. And he wanted some advice on how to create some compelling set pieces as such. Yeah. So I've got my own notes here, which I'll run through. If you've got your own ideas, please of course, jump in and uh, or, or give us the end as well. But yeah. here are some of the thoughts that I had about some advice I used to, to create interesting environments. So... The first thing is, um, and this is a real problem with any fantasy setting, whether it's in a role-playing game or books, etc., is think about things like Star Wars. You know, you see, you've got an ice planet or a desert planet, you know, or a water planet. You know, this whole concept that, you know, any environment is all one thing. Yeah, you know, all-consuming. Yeah, all-consuming as such, you know. And, and you've got to remember that no matter how big or small your location in your game is, whether it's a single city or an entire planet, is that it's going to have varied aspects across its entirety as such. You know, yeah. um, you look at think about any city you've ever lived in. You'll find there are different suburbs or, or, or you know, areas in the city that have a different style. You know, they were built at different times. They were you know have different socioeconomic groups in them. You know, they have different crime rates, different. Um, municipal policies, different levels of policing, different levels of healthcare as such, you know, and all these things 
contribute towards the overall aesthetic of the area. You know, this is why you get things like slums and you get nice areas. You know, no matter how small an area is, it will have a dichotomy across it. And the biggest mistake people make is to say, okay, so we're in a high city. It looks like blah. And everywhere you go in the high city is exactly the same. Yeah. You know, I would encourage, if you haven't already, check out our um, our, our Roll20 game on, on YouTube, which we will be continuing again shortly now that I'm back from my travels. Uh, but there, I've tried to make sure that every level of the hive you guys have gone to has had something Different. distinct about it. You know, the, the, the first thing I'll give you is a is a very verbose description of what your character's first perceptions are. And it's a big thing to sort of think about when you're, just, when you're making any description, whether it's a character or a location, is try to think about the aspects that draw the eye first. You know, describe things in, in order of, I guess, preference as such. And this or is of noticeability. That's right, exactly right, yeah. And I don't know if we mentioned it on the show before, but this is the thing we've had with our Black Crusade game, is that Matt, Matt who's our GM, who's a fantastic GM as well, has this thing where he'll describe NPCs, and he describes quite mundane aspects about them. And then it's like, then it's like oh yeah, and he also has, the lower half of his body is like a giant crab centaur. It's like, really? Okay, that, that was... <laughs> that, that was less little... noticeable than the colour of his eyes, <laughs> that's, yes. That's it, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, think about, you know, if you were describing the scene, what would your eyes be drawn to first? What would your, your, your ears or how would you perceive it first? And, and that creates a more realistic, I guess, description that people can follow along both psychologically yeah. as well as um, verbally. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to add in here that always keep it 40k yeah. as well. Because... Like you said, Skulls. It, no, no, it's not so much that. I mean, like, if it's an agricultural world, mm. yes, all it is is just farm fields everywhere. But not every single farm field is going to be growing exactly the same thing. Not every single little hamlet village is going to look exactly the same. They're going to have different types of people in them. They're going to have different processes in place for the different types of crops that they're farming. Even if the world is only farming one particular type of crop, the people are still going to be acting differently which is going to shape the environment as well. So don't be afraid to make... Even if the world is somehow only one thing, like it's just a big barren asteroid which they're mining, the people in there are going to have an effect on the environment as well. That's true. Uh, All right then, so look for tools that you can use, whether it's images online or audio or or pre-written descriptions, things that you can give to your players to help you set the scene. Yeah. So once again, go back to the Roll20 game, I tried to pick a different audio track for each area of the hive in order to create the instant impression that something is different about this place to the last place we were just in. Yeah. And all the same thing, make a big deal out of the transition from location to location. Even when you're talking about near, near transitions, like literally from one suburb to the next, you know, the time that your characters will perceive the change is when they first encounter it. So, you know, if you once again listen to our Roll20 game, I have used things like the, the lifts between levels to sort of, as a breaking point to say, okay, you ended in down low and when you come out, like, wow, this place is so different. Here's what's different about it. You know, it's more, there's more movement up here. There's, there's more sound. There's more action going on than what there was when you got on the elevator earlier as well. Yeah. Um, and decide early on when you do want to have a transition that covers a long distance like you know the players are in this village and they want to travel to this other village you need to decide early on am I just going to hand wave that as okay you go or am I going to expect the characters to 
role play through at least some of that adventure, some of that journey. And why? Is it because I want to have a random encounter on the way or because I want to have conversations or because I just want to space my game out while I think of the next part I actually want to run? Yep. Um, yeah, you need to decide how you want to do that. And I think a good way to manage those long transitions as well is to come up with things for your characters to talk about in transit. So, okay, they're given the mission by their handler as such and what they're going to do. And rather than saying, okay, so you guys talk about what you want to do and then when you're ready, we'll, we'll, we'll set off. So, okay, you know, your handler says, you know, time's a factor, get going. They board their transport to wherever it is they're going and then have them role play out their sort of planning conversations while they're traveling, while you interject scenes and set pieces along the way. You know, it makes the the journey from place to place something more than just a tour of you reading out a number of random things that they pass. Yeah. If they're if they're playing with the game at the same time, uh, try to make areas stand out more by having them vary in between PC visits. You know, at the end of the day, we talked about there being a dichotomy in everywhere in the world, and even then, even in locations that are fixed they do have changes as such. You know, people move in, in and out, you know, buildings decay, new buildings are built. The The nature of a particular location will change several times um, over time. You know, and even make sure that you demonstrate to the PCs who've been here before how this environment has changed because of their earlier presence, you know. So maybe they did something that was substantial for this area and now there is some sort of recognition of that or maybe they had a big fight and so the wreckage of that fight still persists and the, the people avoid it as such. You know, and also, I guess, make sure people know that there are changes occurring in spite of the carrier's actions, you know, that whether they were here or not, this the nature, this change was going to occur as such and that this, this area is different now. Because, yeah, because yep. of it, exactly. Um, try to attach personalities, you know, NPCs literally to locations and give them the same aesthetic as a location as such. So... If your location is an area of the hive, which is in the lower hive where all the junk from above falls down, and you want to have sort of like some sort of kingpin style character for that area, then make that character something like who was like the head of the, the scavengers who scavenged the junk from above and uh, has risen to a position of power and now has a heavily augmented body from all the injuries he sustained, you know, in his years of of doing this such once again bring it back to the Roll20 game look at what we did with the area of the the hive your characters have been in in recent time as such the NPCs that you've met yep. the guy half integrated into the cogitator yep. you know I, I tried to make sure that the the nature of where you were affected was, was, the NPCs yeah it was reflected in their in their appearance and their actions as well um, be very careful when it comes to creating truly alien environments Okay, so alien environments are great for a number of reasons. For horror, for just presenting that sort of unusual thing. But just be careful that what you do is not too unrealistic. And I'm going to use the example here of the film Avatar. Yeah. So Avatar, I thought, was a decent science fiction film with one key exception, the floating islands. Yeah. You know, so there are just literally bits of ground, you know, with waterfalls and everything just hanging in the air with, with no attempt at a valid reason given as such, you know, like everything about that. The unobtainium makes them float. Yes, <laughs> so, that never came up in the in the show as well, you know, in the movie yeah. as well. I mean, you know, but everything else about the, you know, the strange ecosystem, 
the you know the way that the, the, they interacted with each Absolutely. other. Absolutely, so, so I mean, we're all within the realms of science fiction. Um, but yeah, floating islands starts to get into the realms of sort of magic as such. And when you start to put those sort of elements into your game, it does break down um, the suspension of disbelief. Yeah, you know. I mean, there is a time to use truly fantastical whatever you want, and the that warp. is the warp. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So yeah, try and keep it somewhat realistic. And I, I want to add in here another thing you should probably be careful of mm. is space run. Space yeah. France. Yes. Yeah, that, that, that stereotyped, it's like this planet, you know, this world, this civilization. You can do it. And I mean, Games Workshop does it. Yeah. Um, nothing wrong with that. But just be careful with it because otherwise people just, they stereotype it and then it becomes a bit of a joke. Yeah. You know, oh, Space France. You know, oh, it's full of cheese and onions and people in stripy shirts. You know, avoid that sort of thing. Um, you can use elements from that, but twist it a bit. Mix in other things with it, and use it as a template, maybe. Um, but don't rely on that exclusively by just saying, "Yeah, it looks like Rome yeah. in space." I think one of the common mistakes that role players make, and it comes all the way back from the dawn of role playing with D and D, where when it comes to describing a location, you start with the. Um, the, the, the sort of non-descriptive but I guess the sterile descriptions first like you enter a room it's about 20 feet across by 30 feet wide you know nobody walks into a room and assesses the length and width of the room yeah you know they, they, they walk in a room and, and assess the most interesting object in the room first and, or you know individuals or threats and such and go from there so you know with your descriptions avoid those very sort of sterile cold you know hard descriptions and such and, and yeah. focus on yeah, I said colour on sound on people on actions and such you know the things that the eye are drawn to first not on yeah. you know, I mean there's you're right there's a big difference between someone saying okay you walk into a room it's 10 feet by 10 feet there's a 5 foot chasm across the middle of the room and to say you walk into a small chamber there's a large chasm in the middle of the room the rest of the chamber is roughly 10 foot yeah that's it. I mean, I, 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 one I, sounds a lot better than the other. I, I could say a room is five foot square, or I could say it feels claustrophobic. Yeah. In either case, that's what it is. You know, it's, it's a small room, basically. Yeah. So, you know, look for those descriptive words that are emotive rather than outright sterile, sterile yeah. exactly, yeah. descriptive. Um, and I guess the thing to do with, with these games is try to give the characters, the PCs, and, and by extension the players, an ext- a reason to care about the location. Yeah. So if they go to a location to start interacting with NPCs, you know, give them a reason to care about the the out, the outcomes of those NPCs and those locations, what happens to them, and, and that way you can also screw them in the future when it comes to, you know, taking down those locations that they all build bombardments. Yeah, yes, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I suppose the only other thing I can really add is remember the NPCs and the people that live in these environments. If it's a meat packing area. The people are going to be dressed like meat packers. They're going to act like meat packers. They're not yeah. going to be haughty nobles. They're going to be people who see meat. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's it. So, I mean, and, and I mean, Mike, you've done some very good jobs of describing things in the past when it came to like Star Trek comment we mentioned on the show earlier. Yeah. Not Star Trek comment, sorry, Star Trek travel. Yeah. We mentioned on the show earlier with your, with your warp translation on a abattoir ship. You know, that was all very sort of descriptive, flowery words that weren't, 
you know, in any any way, shape, or form, hard hard line defining as such. You know, yeah. so you never referred to times or distances or yeah. I mean, you know. that's it. Let the characters and the players let them fill in the blanks. Yeah, you know, and then if they say, "Oh, I walk over to something that you didn't particularly mention, or you just hinted at," fine, work it in. I mean. There's going to be skull icons and statues of imperial saints and the emperor everywhere. It's an role playing game. It's a collaborative experience. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're working to do this together with both the players and the GM. So if people have got something they want to add to the description, then unless it really breaks your game, then by all means allow it as well. Yeah. You know, let them work with you to create an interesting environment. All right, well, hopefully that is, unless you've got anything else, hopefully that that's, that's no, answered Dennis's question and gives people some advice on how to put together some more vivid locations in their game. Yeah. All right, let's move on to closing out the show. Okie dokie. All astropaths in the choir chamber. Message incoming. Okay, so this is where we talk about contact we've had in the last sort of fortnight before we close out the show. Yep. Uh, I've seen no new reviews on iTunes in the last fortnight, but that's fine. If you do enjoy the show, please do take a moment to review us on iTunes. Uh, You know, any feedback we get, it helps us you know, be constructive and also helps other people find and, and enjoy the show as well. Yeah. Uh, we did have, other than that uh, communication from Dennis, we had one other comment from one of our regular listeners and the and Roll20 players as well, Cameron, via Facebook. He referred back to our earlier uh, episode we spoke about converting from other game settings for uh, for this as well, yep. like, you know, yeah, to, modules, etc. He came across an idea about converting Dungeons & Dragons stat blocks to 40k so if you know if you really want to have your marines take on the Tarrasque yeah, <laughs> there's some ways you can do it and the thing he found basically said suggested taking the Dungeons and Dragons stats applying them to the characteristics in 40k and multiplying them by 2.5 so say for example you have a character with a strength of 10 yeah. you know he would potentially have a strength of 25 in the 40k setting and some are obvious strength to strength constitution to toughness for example Charisma to Fellowship. Others require a bit more thought as well. And I guess the two um, weapon skill and ballistic skill probably have to make up on the side. But only other point that Cameron raised was that although it wasn't included in what he read, he sort of thought that um, uh, getting hit points from D&D down to wounds, you're probably best going to weigh dividing by 2.5 because you can get a character easily with 100 plus wounds in Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. And so, or hit points, I should say. And you want to have you know, a, a much smaller number of, of, wounds. of wounds. Exactly. Yep. But uh, just a, a nice little thought from him on how to convert D&D over. So, yeah, I'll have to find some interesting d I mean... Tarask. I'll, I'll tell a quick role-playing... Fishman. Quick, quick role-playing story here was... Um, uh, we used to play a game called Mask of the Red Death. Yeah. And Mask of the Red Death was an 1890s setting for Ravenloft. So it was very similar to Call of Cthulhu, I guess. And when we played this game, our GM at the time yeah. realised that because he was effectively running D&D, any creature from the D&D Monster Mania could effectively make an appearance in his game. So when we were on the Orient Express traveling through Germany, I think it was, I'm not even sure the Orient Express went through Germany, anyway, um, yeah, at a train station, our characters observed a number of crabmen in suits with monocle smoking cigars. Yes. <laughs> so they had, they, were, they had nothing to do with the plot at all. It was just the GM showing off, look, I can pull regular D&D creatures into my 1890 setting as well. Crabmen <laughs> in suits with monocles. Yes. Exactly right. Awesome. <laughs> all right then, so... If you do want to contact the show, there's a few ways to do it. First off, our website is www.grimdartpodcast.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash grimdartpodcast. 
Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com slash plusgrimdartpodcast. Uh, we tweet at grimdartpodcast. I've also started using my own personal trigger, which is at uh, grimdartjames. Yep. So I'm going to be posting show updates in terms of episode releases on the Grimdart Podcast page. And I'm going to be posting whatever other crap I do in my life on the at Grimdart James page. So uh, most people follow the, the podcast one, but yeah, I'm going to start using my one again a bit yep. more too now. Okay. Uh, I know you're not going to, that's fine. Um, there's our voicemail link on our website. On the right-hand side, you can click on send voicemail and leave us a voice message. And also, don't forget our drive-thru RPG affiliate link. Go to our website. On the left-hand side, you'll see the drive-thru RPG link. If you use that, then go and buy your PDF books from there. You support both the game creators and also us on the show here, too. Yep. So, coming up next episode, which will be episode 44. It's a Black Crusade episode. Uh, we're going to be looking at the investigation system from the Tome of Fate. Yep. Uh, we're going to be reviewing, or not reviewing, but going through the Thousand Sun Sorcerer, which I imagine you playing one will want to have a... I have a lot to say about. Yep. Uh, we're going to talk about the nature of Zinch itself. And also, you wanted to do a review of the Warhammer 30k stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, the Horus Heresy. Books, that's yeah. it. You're exactly right. Yeah. So that's it for the show. Mike, welcome back once again, and congratulations once again. It's good to... It, it was, you know, hard without you, but it's good to have you back. Thank you very much. It's and, good to be um, back. We look forward to catching up with you next episode. Okay, thanks very much. Take care. This podcast is not endorsed by or of the dead with Games Workshop or Fantasy Flight Games. Warhammer 40,000, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Only War, Eternal Crusade, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Fantasy Flight Games is trademark of Fantasy Flight Publishing Inc. All other materials are trademark and or copyright of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grimdark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music comes from Mibio's Music Alley. Music.mibio.com.